This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Disrupting the Cycle of Pride. In the first half, Marvin J. Ashton shares his address, Carry Your Cross. Then in the second half, Wilford W. Anderson speaks on the Pride Cycle. Why don't you have crosses on your buildings of worship? Why aren't your chapels built in the shape of a cross? Why don't you encourage your people to wear and display crosses? What is the church's policy toward crosses? From Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 24 and 25, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. We in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in response to these questions that I said initially, we try to teach our people to carry their crosses rather than display or wear them. Over the centuries, in the minds of millions, the cross has been recognized as a symbol of Christianity. The Savior himself has given us the bread and water as emblems of his sacrifice and death. My message to you is take up your cross. Take yourself the way you are and lift yourself in the direction of the better. Regardless of where you have been, what you have done, or what you haven't done, trust God, believe on him, Relate to him, worship him as you carry your cross with dignity and determination. We save our lives by losing them for his sake. As you find yourself, you will find God. This is true. I declare that to you. It is his promise. Take up the real cross of Jesus Christ. What kind of cross do you bear? What is its shape, weight, size, or dimension? We all have them. Some are very visible, while others are not always evident. Sometimes the heaviest personal cross could be to carry no cross at all. Some crosses we carry and bear are these. Maybe you will relate to one or more. The cross of loneliness. The cross of physical limitations. The loss of a leg, an arm, hearing, seeing, mobility. Obvious crosses. We see people with these crosses and we admire their strength in carrying them with dignity. The cross of poor health, the cross of transgression, 
the cross of success, the cross of temptation, the cross of beauty, fame, and wealth. Some of you would like to have that one. (laughs) Cross of financial burdens, the cross of criticism, the cross of peer rejection. What if we are challenged with more than one cross? I had a beautiful young lady say to me yesterday, Elder Ashton, it just isn't time for me to have another cross. I'm not quite used to the one I'm carrying now. How can I handle both? Truly, suffering is part of our mortal existence. And suffering is not all bad. Today I'd like to talk in more detail about certain crosses in life that are real, but are not always recognized or visible. Number one, the cross of a violated trust on the part of a parent, a family member, a teacher, a bishop, a state presidency member, a boyfriend, a classmate, a return missionary, a girlfriend, etc. Some let an act of mistrust on the part of someone who is close to us shatter our todays and tomorrows. A friend of mine said, when my endowed father left my mom for a scheming secretary, it was more than I could bear. She was bitter. This cross was causing her to crumble. She had never looked upon it as a cross. It was hatred and resentment. I can't believe my father would let us down. What's the use? Another? When my boyfriend talked me into a couple of drinks and then took advantage of me morally, it caused me to never trust anyone again. A cross which is breaking her because she has not decided that with God's help she can carry that. Another just during the week, a broken-hearted wife of a year and a half. My husband, a return missionary, told me it was okay, so I, so I did it. Compromising immoral intimacies. A letter during the week from the father of two BYU co-eds who were the victims of improper conduct on the part of imperfect people on campus. The father and mother were shattered. We can't stand to believe and know that that could happen to our students at Brigham Young University. We're proud of this campus, but it's made up of imperfect people, and sometimes very imperfect things happen, even though we thank God that they are few and less here than any other place we know of. Can even these types of hidden crosses 
be carried for future strength instead of causing us to fall and not get back. Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven. And I, the Lord, remember them no more. Sometimes it's easier for the Lord not to remember them than it is for us. And it becomes a cross because we will not do ourselves a favor of carrying on. By this ye may know if a man repent of his sins, behold, he will confess them and forsake them. Can you carry appropriately the cross of forgiveness? Some of us would rather carry a cross than confess and start anew. In George Q. Cannon's wonderful book, The Life of Joseph Smith the Prophet, he points out repeatedly that the greatest cross that Joseph Smith had to bear, and he had many, was the cross of trusted friends who were not worthy of the word trust. His heartaches, his death, his inconveniences were caused by those where trust had been misplaced. Number two, another cross that isn't always visible but on occasion can be very heavy and very worrisome. The cross of self-unacceptance. A continuing unwillingness to accept oneself. Self-condemnation. Low self-appraisal. Can you find it in your heart to once in a while give yourself a good grade on your behavior? Or do you give yourself low marks? no matter what you do because you carry the cross of self-unacceptance. An unannounced but obvious self-imposed personal enemy number one status in regard to ourselves is a heavy cross. Sometimes in solitude and in humility there's only one person on the earth that can be your advocate, and that must be you. Someone who will not self-condemn under that cross and cause us to fail. Being down on oneself is a destructive situation as we bear this kind of a cross, we have a tendency to reach the levels we expect of ourselves. What a cross to convince yourself, I'm no good, I can't do it, I can't make it. What a cross that doesn't even show. But by lifting that cross, we can become more than we would have been had we not been required to carry the cross. Some of us spend too much time protecting 
our wounded selves. Living in a world of always wishing you were some other person with greater talents and greater strengths is a handicap, is a cross that is not visible but so real. It is a cross to bear when we fail to realize that with God's help we can overcome. We can be victorious and can accomplish much. I love this quotation, and I suppose I use it more than any other one, as I try to give encouragement to family and to friends like you. And it came to pass that when Ammon had said these words, his brother Aaron rebuked him, saying, Ammon, I fear that thy joy doth carry thee away unto boasting. But Ammon said unto him, I do not boast in my own strength nor in mine own wisdom, but behold, my joy is full. Yea, my heart is brim with joy, and I will rejoice in my God. Now this. Yea, I know that I am nothing. As to my strength, I am weak. Therefore, I will not boast of myself, but I will boast of my God. For in his strength, I can do all things. I wish we believed that. I wish we practiced that. I wish we knew that. There are days when people have been called to positions of responsibility like I have to have to go humbly and say, God, I'm weak, but with your help, we can do it and give him a chance to help us lift that cross of inadequate strength. Behold, many mighty miracles we have wrought in this land for which we will praise his name forever. Behold, how many thousands of our brethren he has loosed from the pains of hell, and they are brought to sing redeeming love, and this because of the power of his word which is in us. Therefore have we not great reason to rejoice. It is a fact of life that God can make our crosses easier to bear if we are but willing to admit we have one or more and seek his help. From the Doctrine and Covenants, section 52, verse 2, And he that will not take up his cross and follow me and keep my commandments, the same shall not be saved. A willingness to take oneself as he or she is and build from there is pleasing to God. If you have more than one cross, if you have three or four, maybe we could build a ladder out of them and use them to get to new heights. Sometimes becoming is more important than achieving or arriving. 
I'm not talking about self-indulgence. I'm talking about self-acceptance and that all tomorrows can be in our favor if we carry in a spirit of commitment and self-encouragement. Number three, the cross of counsel resistance. Some of us have a tendency to resent, to resist, rebel, delay, de to debate worthy direction, supervision, communication, and indifferences. I plead with you to avoid the ranks of professional counsel resistors. by such statements as, who are you to tell me? I didn't come here to be babysit. Why all the restrictions? Where does the free agency come in? Why don't you just leave us alone? Some carry that heavy cross of wanting to rebel or resist counsel that comes from friends. We reject it because it may cause inconvenience or we may not be able to see far enough ahead to see the value. In the 23rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 6, Joseph Knight was counseled to pray, quote, Behold, I manifest unto you, Joseph Knight, by these words, that you must take up your cross in the which you must pray vocally before the world as well as in secret, and in your family, and among your friends, and in all places. Sometimes we are given crosses so that we can be taught to pray. Crosses become lighter. They become manageable when we learn to pray and when we learn to put up with delays in our prayer-seeking. An unwillingness to listen and learn can be a silent cross of considerable weight. Carry the cross of constant prayer even when answers are slow or difficult to accept. Number four, the cross of living among many Mormons. I hope I can get out of that one all right. <laughs> Did you ever think of it as a cross? Having many Mormons for many church assignments may not be as rewarding and developing as situations where there are few Mormons to do many church responsibilities. Some of you come from locations where your strength, your commitment, your attendance made the difference. Sometimes it's easy in this kind of a climate and these conditions 
to let the cross of many Mormons make us weak because we feel in our hearts someone else will do it. Complacency, lack of enthusiasm, and involvement can be the fruits of too many. Often there is great strength and development in minority situations, even where many of you came from before you came to campus. Like the two boys, the only two deacons in a small branch. And one boy said, I must be awfully important because I'm 50%. How sad and I hope untrue the statement there aren't enough church jobs to go around. Beware of the cross of complacency and an attitude of not being needed. It is a cross when your attitude is someone else can do that. I'll wait for another assignment. Number five, the cross of caustic comments. To ridicule, to have pleasure out of constantly putting people down, murmuring, contention, slander, gossip, putting yourself down and enjoying it. Avoid being a rumor reservoir. If you're part of a rumor reservoir, you are entitled to drown. Some people enjoy being caustic. Some have careless and sharp tongues as crosses. Ours is not to live with them, but to reshape and manage tongues and minds that enjoy being caustic. A home of contention is more than a cross. It is a curse. Some homes, without decoration and without rehearsal, train the inhabitants to be critical. It is an invisible cross of tremendous power and is destructive if we carry that kind of cross. From 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 32, And again the Lord God hath commanded that men should not contend one with another. Contention is not good. A caustic tongue can construct additional crosses that are so unnecessary. A critical tongue is a cross easily removed, but only you can do it. Cross number six, the cross of adulation. Be careful, be aware, be wise when people speak well of you. When people treat you with great respect and love, be careful, be aware, be wise. 
when you're honored, pointed out and recognized, it can be a cross, especially if you believe what is said about you. Being a BYU student, a return missionary, BYU faculty, BYU administration, a general authority, a prophet, temple married. Some people know these identifications for you, and although you take them for granted, they're lofty, but they're cross, and you must bear them well. Be careful. Be aware. Be wise. It sounds juvenile and unnecessary to say, but perhaps you need to be reminded that just being on this campus in the eyes of millions is an identification of adulation. It's a wonderful blessing, but it's a cross to be carried appropriately. Praise of the world can be a heavy cross. How often I've heard it said over the years, he was great until he became successful, and then he couldn't handle it. I'm not talking about money, position. I'm talking about recognition even in church responsibilities. We should honor callings and responsibilities, but realize what we are and what we do will depend on the strength of the cross. I would pray that we would avoid being carried away by praise success, or even achieving goals that we set for ourselves. In the 8th chapter of Mormon, 38, 39th verses, O ye pollutions, ye hypocrites, ye teachers, who sell yourselves for that which will canker, why have ye polluted the Holy Church of God? Why are you ashamed to take upon you the name of Christ? Why do ye think that greater is the value of an endless happiness than the misery which never dies because of the praise of the world? Why do you ye adorn yourself with that which has no life, and yet suffer the hungry and the needy and the naked? and the sick and the afflicted to pass by you and notice them not." Close quote. How great, how strong, how pleasing in the sight of the Lord to be recognized, honored, respected, and not realize in our hearts that true greatness is visiting with the Savior Jesus Christ by helping those who are sick, afflicted, discouraged, homeless, and burdened with crosses. In conclusion, we do not reverence crosses. 
As stated in the beginning, ours is to carry them with dignity and power. Our right and responsibility is to carry our crosses and while we're doing it, have the good sense and judgment to count our blessings. These phrases you'll recognize. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one as you carry your cross. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. There is an aid, there is a strength, there is a power. When we count our blessings, as we labor under crosses which sometimes seem unreasonable and unfair, but can be for our good and for our strength. I bear special witness to you tonight that carrying our crosses and following Him will bring strength, peace, and purpose in our quest for the abundant life. God has made this promise. Carry your crosses with strength, with purpose. And while you do, count the blessings of God's strength. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Disrupting the Cycle of Pride. We've just heard from Marvin J. Ashton. After the break, we'll return with Wilford W. Anderson for the Pride Cycle. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Disrupting the Cycle of Pride. Next is Wilford W. Anderson, General Authority 70 of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled The Pride Cycle. It has been said that a good talk will always comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. As you listen this morning, you might consider which of those two applies to you. If my message accomplishes either of these two results, I will feel that it has been worthwhile. I have prayed that the Holy Ghost will carry my words to your hearts and that you will then apply them in a way that will bless your lives. 
There is a prevalent pattern of behavior in the Book of Mormon, commonly referred to as the Pride Cycle. It is repeated so frequently that one begins to sense that the Lord and His prophets are trying to teach us something important, that perhaps its inclusion in the record is meant to be a warning from the Lord to each of us in our day. Pride is a serious sin. In fact, in the book of Proverbs we read that it is number one on the list of seven deadly sins that the Lord hates. Using a clock as a metaphor, let's say that the pride cycle begins at 12 o'clock, the pinnacle of pride. When we are at 12 o'clock on the pride cycle, we, like the Nephites of old, feel so successful, so intelligent, so popular, that we begin to feel invincible. We enjoy it when others compliment us on our successes, and we are irritated when others around us receive compliments on their successes. At 12 o'clock, we tend not to listen to the counsel of others. We don't need others. Sadly, we often conclude that we don't even need God or His servants. We bristle at their counsel. We are doing just fine on our own. We forget or we reject what King Benjamin taught, that we are eternally indebted to our Heavenly Father to render to Him all that we have and are. Our modern-day prophets have warned us against unrighteous pride. President Ezra Taft Benson called it the universal sin and the great stumbling block of Zion. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf compared pride to a personal ramiumptum, a holy stand that justifies envy, greed, and vanity. However you define it, its consequences are always the same. It alienates us from God. It pushes us around the pride cycle to two o'clock, where we offend the Spirit of the Holy Ghost. Initially, we may think that offending the Spirit of the Holy Ghost is inconsequential. Nephi described it as being lulled away into carnal security. All is well in Zion, we think. Yea, Zion prospereth. All is well. Interestingly, at two o'clock on the pride cycle, if we are honest with ourselves, we really are not that happy. We have this gnawing sense that we are slipping. We try to fight back against the uncomfortable currents of the pride cycle. We cling to the memories of past successes and insist on putting our trust in the arm of flesh. This is a serious mistake. Jesus taught that you and I are like branches that depend upon the vine for nourishment. I am the vine, he taught. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. When we offend the Spirit, we cut ourselves off from the very source of all spiritual nourishment, and it is just a matter of time until we begin to wilt. Without the help of the Lord and the influence of the Spirit, the gravitational pull of the pride cycle drags us down toward four o'clock failure. For although a man have power to do many mighty works, the Lord taught Joseph Smith, Yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets at naught the counsels of God, 
and follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall. We can choose our conduct, but we cannot choose the consequences of our conduct. And at four o'clock on the pride cycle, we experience the painful consequences of our own foolish pride. We may lose the job. We may lose the girlfriend or the boyfriend. We may lose the respect of those who matter most to us. Worse yet, we may lose respect for ourselves. Time has a way of relegating the most important among us from the list of who is who to the list of who is he or who is she. And at four o'clock, we come face to face with our own inadequacies. Like Moses, we realize that we are not so important after all, which thing we never had supposed. Failures and afflictions are not happy thoughts for any of us. But ironically, we often find that they are great blessings because they tend to push us on around the pride cycle towards six o'clock humility. Our journey from four o'clock failure to six o'clock humility can be strangely exhilarating. We begin to lose our pretensions. We are no longer trying to impress those around us. We begin to see things more clearly and more honestly. We are more comfortable with criticism and can smile at our own mistakes and weaknesses. At six o'clock on the pride cycle, it's not as one Christian author has observed that we think less of ourselves, but rather that we think of ourselves less. The British writer G.K. Chesterton described the transition brilliantly when he wrote, How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played, and you would find yourself under a freer sky and in a street full of splendid strangers. At six o'clock on the pride cycle, we become truly humble. We also become meek. Humility and meekness are foundational principles of the gospel. We speak often of the great triumvirate of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and charity. But the Prophet Mormon suggests that there is a fourth virtue that makes possible the other three. And again he taught, Behold, I say unto you that he cannot have faith and hope, save he shall be meek and lowly of heart. If so, his faith and hope is vain, and none is acceptable before God save the meek and lowly in heart. And if a man be meek and lowly in heart, and confesses by the power of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, he must needs have charity. Another scriptural attribute often associated with six o'clock humility is submissiveness. King Benjamin taught that the natural man is an enemy to God and will be forever and ever unless he becomes as a little child, submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. We can learn much about humility and meekness from little children. They seem to spend much of their little lives at six o'clock on the pride cycle. They are comfortable there. No wonder that the Lord teaches us that in order to come into his presence, 
we must become as a little child. One of our sons and his wife were struggling with contention and disunity among their children in their home. After counseling together, they decided that pride was the cause. They had a family council and on the matter with their children and determined together that humility is what the children needed to eliminate the contention and the disunity. To help their children remember to be kind, they placed a chair in the corner of the kitchen and designated it as the humility chair. <laughs> when a child misbehaved or became upset, they would invite him to sit or her to sit in the humility chair for a while until he could reflect and recalibrate. Then he could rejoin society whenever he was ready. The humility chair worked as they hoped it would, and then one day our son returned from a long, hard day of work and displayed some impatience with several of the children who were yelling and running through the house. One of his little daughters looked at him and said, Papa, you need to sit in the humility chair, which he did. He reflected, recalibrated, and rejoined society when he was ready. Each of us would be wise to designate a humility chair, if not in the corner of the kitchen, perhaps in the corner of our minds and hearts, where we can recalibrate and remember our dependence on the Lord. Partaking of the sacrament each week provides just such an opportunity. We should not make the mistake, however, of confusing meekness with weakness. It has been said that meekness is not a recognition of our weakness, but rather a recognition of the true source of our strength. There is nothing weak about meek. It's just that when we're humble and meek, we don't elevate ourselves. We elevate God. David, the young shepherd boy, was sent by his father to deliver food to his older brothers who were fighting the Philistines in the valley of Elah. When he got to the Israelite camp and learned of the challenge from the giant Goliath, he offered to represent the armies of Israel and fight the giant himself. While his brothers ridiculed him, David meekly explained to King Saul that, quote, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine, unquote. Something in David's meek demeanor must have impressed King Saul because he responded, Go, and the Lord be with thee. So David confronted the giant who was furious that the Israelites would send a shepherd boy to fight him. Come to me, he called out to David, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand. Then with a sling and one small stone, the meek shepherd boy David killed the proud giant Goliath. You and I live in a society where humility and meekness seem almost counterintuitive. Trash talk, power politics, and end zone victory dances are celebrated, while noiseless devotion to God is increasingly ignored and at times even belittled. But let us never forget, brothers and sisters, that humility and meekness are required 
if we wish to continue our progress around the cycle. At six o'clock on the pride cycle, when we are truly humble and meek, we turn back to God because there is often nowhere else to turn. Our hearts are now broken and our spirits are contrite. The world defines brokenhearted as being overcome with grief or despair, something to be avoided if at all possible. But in the scriptures, having a broken heart is a peaceful and hopeful condition and ultimately a prerequisite to eternal glory. Consider this perspective on what it means to have a broken heart. To break a horse is to train a horse how to be ridden. A broken horse accepts the saddle strapped to its back, the reins placed around its head with the bit in its mouth, and a rider in the saddle. A broken horse has learned through experiences how to obey and be responsive to the guidance given by the rider. Only then can a horse be useful and productive. And so it is with a broken heart. A broken heart is one that has been trained through experience to be obedient and responsive to the commands of the Master. Only with a broken heart can we be truly useful and productive in the Lord's service. At six o'clock, we yield our hearts to God. And because we are humble, the Lord begins to lead us by the hand and give us answer to our prayers. With His guidance, we continue around the pride cycle toward eight o'clock, where we invite the Spirit of the Holy Ghost into our lives once again. The Spirit's influence changes our hearts. Like the people of King Mosiah, we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. We begin to keep God's commandments, and He begins to pour down His blessings upon us, blessings that He has always desired to give us, for that is His nature, but that we refuse to receive because of our foolish pride. We begin to receive blessings because we are now obeying the laws upon which they are predicated. We pay our tithing, and the Lord opens the windows of heaven and pours down so many blessings that we cannot receive them all. Our humble obedience to the commandments powers our progress around the pride cycle toward 10 o'clock, where we find ourselves in a state of blessed happiness. We experience success. It should not surprise us. It is a scriptural promise. And moreover, I would desire that you should consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things both temporal and spiritual. Ten o'clock on the pride cycle is a pleasant and wonderful place to be, but unfortunately it is also a very dangerous place to be. Our associates begin to pat us on the back and to compliment us for all our successes, and unfortunately we begin to believe them. When I was called to serve as a general authority, President Uchtdorf reminded me of some timely advice he received at the time of his call. Brother Anderson, I was told, as a general authority, people will be very kind to you. They will compliment you on your service and tell you how much they liked your conference talks. But when they do, just don't inhale. Compliments can be like a drug. If we are not careful, they can cloud our judgment and create in us an ungodly desire for more and more praise and credit, 
And if our friends don't give us the credit we so richly deserve, we risk rotator cuff injury trying to pat ourselves on the back. Like our ancient adversary, we whisper to ourselves that we deserve the credit, for surely we have done it. And thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Yea, we can see that the Lord in His great infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in Him. Yea, and we may see at the very time when He doth prosper His people, yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks, and their herds, and in gold and in silver, and in all manner of precious things, of every kind and art, yea, and in fine, doing all things for the welfare and happiness of His people, yea, then is the time that we do harden our hearts. And do forget the Lord, they forget the Lord their God, and do trample under their feet the Holy One, yea, and this because of their ease and their exceedingly great prosperity. Slowly and without fully realizing it, we once again approach the twelve o'clock pinnacle of pride, so busy looking around for accolades that we fail to look ahead at the precipitous fall that awaits us. For pride always goeth before the fall. And so the incessant cycle continues. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Most of us, like the Nephites of old, have ourselves taken a few laps around the pride cycle. I used to wonder how the Nephite nation could run the entire cycle in a period of as short as five years. I have since come to believe that we can run the cycle in five years, and we can run it in five minutes. It is a pernicious pattern of thinking and behavior that permeates our society. It is so common that sometimes it becomes hard to even recognize. Are we consigned to continue forever in this endless do-loop of despair? Is there no way to get off the pride cycle? There is. In fact, there are two points on the pride cycle where we can exit, one to our eternal destruction and the other to our everlasting happiness. As we approach four o'clock, when we are facing failure or affliction and feel like all is lost, if instead of becoming humble we become angry, if we lose hope or give in to self-pity, or if we begin to blame others, including God, for our misfortune, we will exit the pride cycle, but we will exit downward to destruction, as did the Nephites of old. But as we approach 10 o'clock, when it seems like we can do no wrong, when all is going well, if instead of becoming proud we can become thankful, we will exit the pride cycle. But this time we will exit upward toward God. To exit the pride cycle at 10 o'clock, we must recognize that every blessing we receive comes from Heavenly Father. He is the source of all that is good in our lives, the fount of every blessing. We must embrace King Benjamin's teachings that all depend upon the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have, for both food and raiment, and for gold and for silver, and for all the riches which we have of every kind. A successful ten o'clock escape from the powerful pull of the pride cycle is not easy, but it is possible. We have a few examples in the Nephite record to prove it.
Consider this one from Alma 62. But notwithstanding their riches or their strength or their prosperity, they were not lifted up in the pride of their eyes, neither were they slow to remember the Lord their God. But they did humble themselves exceedingly before Him. Yea, they did remember how great things the Lord had done for them, that He had delivered them from death and from bonds and from prisons and from all manner of afflictions, and He had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. And they did pray unto the Lord their God continually, insomuch that the Lord did bless them according to His word, so that they did wax strong and prosper in the land. As we speak, each of us likely finds himself or herself somewhere on the pride cycle. Where are you? If you are at four o'clock, if it feels like all is lost, and you are a total failure, don't despair. You are in a good place. Avoid blaming others for your failure. Humbly turn to God and recognize that your dependency on Him is real. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy paths. The gravitational pull of the pride cycle will draw you on around to a brighter future. But if you are at ten o'clock, basking in the false light of success, be careful. Avoid the tendency to turn inward and become prideful. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Follow the scriptural counsel to remember all that the Lord has done for you. As the sacramental prayer reminds us, we must remember Him not for an hour or two, but always. We must not take Him or His sacrifice for granted. We must not fail to thank Him for each and every blessing. The story is told of an elderly grandmother who is walking along the seashore with her little grandson when a giant wave sweeps in, picks up her grandson, and carries him out to sea. The grandmother looks up to heaven and cries, Lord, how could you do this to me? I pay my tithing, I fast once each month, and I live the word of wisdom. Before the grandmother could say amen, another giant wave swept in and delivered her grandson at her feet. She looked down at the boy, then up to heaven and said, Wait, he had a hat. Recognize that all good things come from God. He is the source of every blessing you receive. Fill your heart with gratitude for His merciful kindness. Treasure and follow His counsel and the counsel of His servants. Your gratitude will inoculate you against pride and make a way for your escape from the pride cycle. Brothers and sisters, you are important to the kingdom of God. You are the hope of Israel. Zion's army, the children of the promised day, please be wise. May we each heed the prophetic warning of the Nephite pride cycle. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us each weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Disrupting the Cycle of Pride, with thoughts from Marvin J. Ashton and Wilford W. Anderson. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. 
Fact-Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.